I mean, there are people who are in jail for several years for counterfeiting one vote. If they try to vote illegally once, he tried to steal the entire election. Yes, thank you. He did. Thank you, Congressman. Was that so hard? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Maybe it was. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, where it's uh, Election Day out there, Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. I think it's also uh, Election Day in parts of Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and... Most of your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast as we go to air. Good news, Desi Doyen. Yep. I am not seeing... Too many reports of problems at polling sites in Ohio. Oh, that is good news. Not too many. Uh, that as uh, voters on Tuesday and reportedly huge numbers. Oh, even better out, news. It is. Uh, turned out for a single issue August election. For the first time, by the way, in nearly 100 years, in this case, to vote either for or against an effort by Republican lawmakers to make it more difficult for voters to pass constitutional amendments on the ballot in future elections. An August special election that, by the way, is costing Buckeye State taxpayers at least $20 million, called by those pretend fiscal conservatives in the Republican Party. Uh, It was called by the uh, gerrymandered state legislature just weeks after those same Republicans had otherwise passed a law to outlaw August special elections. But of course, in this case, with citizens in the state collecting enough signatures for a November ballot referendum to codify protections for reproductive freedoms into the state constitution, well, the corrupt state lawmakers in Ohio got to work in hopes of preempting that November measure, which would otherwise require just a majority for passage. But on Tuesday, Ohio was asking voters if it should require a 60% supermajority from now on to adopt 
future state uh, uh, constitutional uh, amendments at the ballot box, like that one in November, to protect the right to abortion in the state. Got it? Republican democracy. You don't get 50 percent of the vote. You have to pass it with 60 percent of the vote. Exactly. And thank you for putting the word democracy in air quotes when (laughs) you're using it with Republicans, apparently. The uh, Tuesday measure... Ballot issue one, uh, that, of course, needs just a simple majority for passage to make it more difficult for future measures to pass. Republicans were hoping to adopt the anti-democracy scheme in a low turnout special election with just one issue on the ballot in the middle of August, which has not happened, by the way, since 1926. Early voting numbers, however, have been huge, more than double of uh, that of last year's midterm primary elections, which had contested statewide uh, races for governor, senator, etc. So opponents of Tuesday's anti-democracy measure are hopeful. We will see what happens when voters' votes are actually tabulated. Uh, Additional voting machines had to be sent out to polling places in Lawrence County on Tuesday to deal with long lines out there. More voting machines were sent to uh, uh, three sites on Tuesday. Quote, we just did not anticipate a turnout like this, said Randy Lambert, a Republican member of the Lawrence County Board of Elections. The board had doubled or more than doubled the number of machines that were available at those sites when they had those long lines that reportedly resulted in them getting shorter. Um, Based on the uh, recommendation of state officials, the board had anticipated a 10 percent turnout this year. Uh, However, the turnout could now be around 20 percent, according to Lambert. Some poll workers in Akron were reportedly unaware of how these uh, how the new voting systems in Akron were supposed to work there. That caused some confusion. It's uh, said to have been uh, cleaned up, uh, cleared up fairly early in the day. So we will see. Not too many reports like that so far. Hopefully uh, some scanners were reporting uh, were, were reportedly jammed and could not tabulate uh, paper ballots, handmarked paper ballots at a precinct in, precinct in Cuyahoga Falls. That's Summit County. Uh, Some folks on the right are out there on Twitter claiming it was some sort of conspiracy, even though these computer tabulators, sadly, they jam all the time. Ballots were then, instead of being scanned, they were deposited into a secure bin to be tallied later on at county headquarters. So far, I've only heard of that at one precinct, but we'll see if a pattern develops. It does happen with some frequency, frankly. Um, And as we always caution, uh, problems at the polling place or with tabulation systems are not always immediately apparent on Election Day. So we will see. Um, We'll otherwise have both reported results from this critical election in Ohio, critical election for democracy, uh, and any problem reports of note out of Ohio on our next broadcast. Meanwhile... We're doing our best to, (laughs) which is not easy, uh, are doing our best to keep up with all of the indictments currently being faced by our disgraced former president and the ridiculous claims that his attorneys are now out there making in hopes of winning, not seemingly in a court of law, but somehow in the court of public opinion. 
which seems to be the game that Trump is now playing, largely because prosecutors have him, it appears, dead to rights on all of the more than 70 charges that he is so far facing in his three different indictments. And even while Trump's attorneys are out there filing motions with judges in those various indictments, arguing that they need to delay responses uh, to various motions, they need to kick the trials themselves down the road because there's just so much material that they have to go through. It's going to take so much time. They are so busy with all of these cases. Even while that was going on, uh, Donald Trump's main attorney in the federal case brought by Jack Smith related to Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, a guy by the name of John Lauro, was out appearing on no less than five news shows over the weekend. That's five. Guess he had plenty of time for that, Desi Doyen. Apparently he did. Uh, plenty of time for that but just can't possibly uh, get to uh, trial or answer motions and so forth uh, in a normal amount of time. Anyway, uh, one of those uh, on one of those news shows, John Lauro told MSNBC's Chuck Todd that while Trump, well, he may have violated the Constitution, but he didn't violate any actual, you know, laws. And so... That was his argument. Uh, there is nothing to see here because of it or uh, something like that. Here was here was John Lauro. A technical violation of the Constitution is not a violation of criminal law. That's just plain wrong. So a technical violation of the Constitution is not a violation of criminal law. That's what Donald Trump's attorneys is apparently going with. Well, Democratic U.S. House uh, Rep. Jamie Raskin, who happens to be a constitutional law professor, who also happened to serve on the bipartisan January 6th U.S. House Select Committee, also happened to serve as the lead manager in Donald Trump's second impeachment for his incitement of an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Raskin strongly disagreed with Lauro's claims. He also appeared on MSNBC's Meet the Press in order to respond to those uh, to that sort of bizarre argument. Well, first of all, a technical violation of the Constitution is a violation of the Constitution. The Constitution in six different places opposes insurrection and makes that uh, a grievous constitutional offense. Mm -hmm. um, so our Constitution is designed to stop people from trying to overthrow elections and trying to overthrow the government. He conspired to defraud the American people out of our right to an honest election mm -hmm. by substituting the real legal process mm -hmm. we have under federal and state law with counterfeit electors. I mean, there are people who are in jail for several years for counterfeiting one vote. Mm -hmm. If they try to vote illegally once, he tried to steal the entire election. Thank you. Yes, he did. He tried to steal the entire election. There you go. A Democrat. A Democrat. What? A Democrat using the word steal, using the correct word to describe in the simplest and most difficult to refute terms exactly what then-President Donald Trump did before, during, and after the November 3rd, 2020 election, and uh, before, during, and after the January 6th, 2021 
insurrection. And putting it in the proper context of people who have received years in jail for trying to steal or just have one fraudulent vote. Unlike those uh, Republicans in the villages, for example, who voted twice and were, you know. Down in Florida. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And in Arizona. By the way, we're going to be heading down to those villages down in Arizona for uh, down in in, uh, Florida uh, for my guests momentarily. But yes. Donald Trump was trying, as the sitting president of the U.S. of the United States, to steal a presidential election. That's it. Thank you. Let's get more of that from your colleagues, Congressman, and most notably from the media covering this insane moment in U.S. history. But I suspect uh, if the Congress members start referring to it like that, then more in the media will do so as well. Anyway... Uh, The moment is no less insane down in the great state of Georgia right now, this afternoon, as many, including us, are now waiting for accountability to be brought in that state's 2020 election. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis appears on the very cusp of bringing what could be expansive criminal charges against the former president and his co-conspirators who tried but failed to help him steal the state in 2020. And it's believed that charges could be handed up from a grand jury at any time now between, well, today and the end of August. Pretty much during that, any time uh, during that, uh, that period. But what is less clear is what exactly those charges will be and, yes, who will be included in them. A special grand jury advised uh, the uh, DA, Fonnie Willis, late last year that they believe charges should be brought against more than a dozen people, though we don't know who those people are and whether the charges will include conspiracy or so-called RICO charges or racketeering charges which uh, you you hear more frequently, of course, uh, it's known to be used against mafia dons and, you know, the mob. Well, you're also hearing a lot of uh, comparisons to Donald Trump as the head of a a mob family, the way he runs his business and, frankly, the way he ran his White House and the way he ran his campaign when he was hoping to steal the election. So what exactly are racketeering charges? It's a very good question. I have never been clear on that, and it's one that I've got a guest joining us next to help you and I both understand so that you and I both are ready when and if, but really mostly when, the charges are finally handed up by a grand jury in Atlanta at virtually any time now. Attorney Keith Barber, known as Keith DB at Daily Coast, Joins us next on the broadcast to discuss that and the, yes, ongoing (laughs) rape and defamation trial that continues to continue against the former president. All of that and Desi Doyen's latest Green News report. Yep. That's all ahead today. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like. 
or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Not so untouchable now, is he? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. With uh, three indictments so far already on the books, two in federal court and one in New York State, we now await the fourth one that is almost certain to come for our disgraced former president. This one in Fulton County, Georgia, following a nearly two-year probe by Atlanta-area district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Several months ago now, I believe it was in May, Willis advised in a letter to the Fulton County Court that workers at the courthouse who could work at home should work at home from the last day of July until the first day of September. And for those with business or hearings before magistrate judges, they should carry them out remotely if possible. She has also shared racist threats that her office has received throughout her probe, advising county officials to be careful and keep their staffs safe during this period. Additionally, law enforcement officers are now stationed to surround the courthouse where Willis several months ago had put those who work in the building on notice that she would be presenting evidence to a grand jury in her sweeping, broad conspiracy probe of Donald Trump and friends and their efforts to steal the 2020 election in the Peach State, which was won that year by Joe Biden. Uh, Of course, uh, Trump was uh, doing so through attempts by his team, including by Trump himself, to strong arm state officials into flipping the results in his favor. One of those efforts, for example, was heard in the now notorious January 2, 2021 phone call that we've all heard where he threatens Georgia's Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger with legal action and advises him. I just want to find eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, votes that Trump would need to steal the election from Georgia voters. As of Monday of this week, the street in front of the Fulton County Courthouse had been has been closed to traffic. And according to the county sheriff in an advisory, it will remain shut down until August 18. Uh, That would be the end of next week or so. Orange barricades and metal barriers now line the street around the Fulton County Courthouse As of Monday morning, a bomb-sniffing dog was brought in to check media vehicles. Despite the traffic closures this week around the courthouse, journalists, legal experts, and other Georgia sources following the case most closely seem to think that despite heightened security measures this week and last, we may still be about a week away from a potential fourth indictment against Trump, though nobody knows for certain. It could be today. 
it could be September 1, though all signs seem to indicate it will be closer to today, at least, than September 1. But who knows? More importantly than when, as much as some of us in the media might like to know, uh, is what charges that Fonnie Willis will ultimately be asking a grand jury to vote on. Last year, Willis enlisted a special grand jury, which in Georgia is essentially an advisory committee. They don't have the power to indict as a regular grand jury does. The special grand jury heard testimony from some 75 witnesses, according to court records. And according to the foreman of that panel, they recommended indicting more than a dozen people, though we still don't know exactly who or what those charges will be. But it's also important to keep in mind that Willis doesn't necessarily have the same restrictions in her case that apply to Jack Smith's recent indictment of Donald Trump with four felony charges related to his conspiracy to steal the 2020 election before, during and after the uh, insurrection that he incited at the U.S. Capitol in hopes of doing exactly that. With, uh, according to Smith, at least six so far unindicted conspirators in that case that include five lawyers, among them Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, who also appear to have played various roles in the attempt to steal Georgia. Smith is racing the clock as Trump attempts to win the presidency again next year and will be then in a position, if he does, to dismiss, to dismiss both of Smith's federal cases against him, if so. Thus, Jack Smith has taken largely the quickest route possible toward a trial and a conviction in his indictments in hopes of completing them in advance of next year's presidential election. That's just one of the reasons it's believed that Smith has yet to indict Trump's co-conspirators, which could substantially lengthen the time that it would take to get to trial. But Trump can't make state charges go away like those in Georgia by virtue of winning the presidency. And that allows Willis whatever time she needs, really, to bring whatever charges are necessary to hold both Trump and a broad array of presumptive co-conspirators accountable. She could, as many have speculated, indict Trump and friends under Georgia's expansive RICO statute, which, though originally created largely to fight the mafia, has been used to take on other criminal enterprises. In Fonnie Willis's case, she has used the statute to take on everything from street gangs to teachers who cheated on test scores for students at Atlanta public schools. It is believed she is likely to do so again in the Trump case. Now, RICO is short for Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organizations. But what is RICO exactly? And for that matter, what is racketeering? In this moment before final indictments come down in the Peach State, presuming they will, as everyone seems to agree, it seems like a good moment for a quick primer on RICO laws and specifically Georgia's version and how it may apply to Donald Trump's apparent criminal conspiracy in that critical battleground state. As luck would have it, our friend Keith Barber, a former attorney, a former Republican and a current contributor on legal and constitutional issues at Daily Coast, recently wrote such a primer for exactly such a purpose. And he joins us again today. O'Keefe. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. 
Thank you, Brad. Good to be back. Great to have you here. All right. Uh, listen, before we get to the imminent, uh, to use Fannie Willis's <laughs> I, word. Uh, from I think it ago, is imminent now. Imminent charges likely to come down in Georgia. Uh, frankly, it's become impossible to keep up with all of Trump's legal woes here. But I know you have been trying, including a ruling by a judge uh, on Monday in what will become a second trial in civil charges brought against Trump by columnist E. Jean Carroll, who accuses Trump of defamation and raping her in the 1990s. She won that case some months ago. She was awarded $5 million by a jury, but she refiled the case when the very next day after the verdict came down against him, Trump went on CNN and defamed her again suggesting that the $5 million penalty she received was not nearly enough. Now, she has been asked for uh, she has asked for a second trial seeking at least $10 million, but at the same time, Trump has countersued Carol alleging that she defamed him since as the old adage goes, every accusation from this guy is a confession. Now, the judge in that case issued a ruling last night you wrote about it yesterday. Can you quickly explain what Trump was charging and how the judge ruled in that matter? Keeping in mind, Keith, this is FCC radio and uh, <laughs> sort of a family program. Good luck to you. Go ahead. Yeah, because yeah, it, it can get graphic. Yeah. Um, essentially, Trump sued, countersued, claiming that Carol defamed him. Mm hmm by accusing him of raping her uh, when the jury concluded that uh, he did not rape her. Mm -hmm. And she, after even after that decision, she went on television and said, yeah, he raped me. And so Trump claimed that was defaming him. Mm -hmm. Well, the decision uh, Monday night was uh, by the judge was the second time the judge basically made the same ruling in saying, no, she didn't defame you because what she said is substantially true. What the jury found he did 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 do to Carol mm -hmm. was rape in the common vernacular and under many uh, the definitions of many jurisdictions in the United States. Mm -hmm. In the article that you're referring to that I did yesterday, I walked through some of those jurisdictions and common definitions mm -hmm. uh, and how uh, what Trump did constitutes rape as people use the word in ordinary usage mm -hmm. and as many other jurisdictions than New York define it legally. And so really what the jury had found was that she didn't uh, that he did not rape her under the very, very narrow definition of rape in New York law in this particular instance. But that, in fact, uh, it, it was found that he did rape her under most uh, known definitions of that word. That's correct. I mean, as you and I use mm -hmm. the word rape in casual usage, mm -hmm. he raped her. And, uh, and and as, for example, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice that he seeks to be commander in chief of again, mm -hmm. he raped her. And that means that the judge essentially tossed out that case. And at this point, the her second trial against him moves forward, I think, beginning in January or something like that. 
Yeah, and it's going to be real interesting because you had the first trial on this, and in law there's a doctrine called issue preclusion. You know, it's it's kind of like stare decisis only for factual issues. But basically, you know, once uh, a court determines, once it has been legally determined that a, a fact is true or an issue is true, you're not supposed to be able to – or at least have to revisit that issue again. So mm-hmm. the court has already determined, for example, what Trump did to her. Mm-hmm. And it should be the case that they shouldn't have to revisit that question again when they go to trial. So that January trial might just be on the amount of damages that uh, it, she's going to receive? It could be just limited to damages. I'll be really interested to see if they go that far. I know that the judge in the case has ask that the parties brief the issue of preclusion. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to come up. All right. Uh, moving on to the uh, next Trump uh, trouble here. Uh, Fannie Willis's case in Georgia in response to Trump's attempt to steal the uh, election in that state. Earlier this year, uh, Willis uh, argued uh, to the Fulton County Superior Court judge overseeing the case that the recommendations of the special grand jury in uh, in that case should remain sealed for now because she told the judge that, uh, as you know, charging decisions were imminent. Now, for a while, you were tweeting each day how many days it had been since she said charges were imminent. Any any idea how many days it is now? I don't know. I, right. What was it? It was back in February, I think she said that. Late January. I think it was January it was, 24, but who's counting? Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's imminent now is over half a year. All right. Well, I, am I right then, as you see it, um, as I suggested in my introduction, that Fani here doesn't have the same sort of time and scope restrictions that Jack Smith currently has? Her case could therefore end up being much broader than the current one filed by Smith regarding similar matters? Yeah, that's an interesting thing that Smith did. I'm, I'm still trying to muddle through that. But, um, yes, I mean, I think, you know, all indications are, all the hints, mm-hmm. especially from that uh, special grand jury foreman who made the uh, media circuit for a day, you know, a memorable day, mm-hmm. Um is that it's going to be a whole lot of people uh, with a whole lot of charges. I mean, she said a dozen or more than a dozen. Mm-hmm. I've kind of got my own, you know, over under of around 20. Mm. Uh, Man. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, it's, it's kind of mind boggling as to how many people it can be. Now, one wild card in that is that I kind of assumed that it would be all 16 of the fake electors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it may not be because uh, indications are that some of them have flipped and are cooperating, so she may not include them. But yeah, well, we'll see. Latest report I saw that it was at least eight had been given immunity, uh, eight of those fake electors. Uh, but then there's, you know, there's there's Trump, there's, uh, 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 there's Giuliani, there's Eastman, there's all the co-conspirators that are that are in the federal offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the people who harassed. Uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss mm-hmm. uh, there uh, to include one of them was oh, I, I, can't, I can't remember now, but uh, related to some rock star. Uh, yes. The, related uh, to Kanye West, that whole instance yeah, where they it. told her yeah. to uh, you can flip now so you don't get in big trouble. 
that was a threat. There was also the, you know, I'm hoping to see, or at least I'm watching for, is uh, whether charges are brought regarding the voting software breach in Coffee County, Georgia, which we have been covering closely on this uh, on this program as well. But let's talk uh, more specifically, Keith. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically was about RICO, uh, racketeer racketeer influenced corrupt organizations. The statute in Georgia. First, can you explain in layman's term uh, (laughs) what RICO charges actually are and why a prosecutor would use that statute rather than simple conspiracy charges as Jack Smith has brought against Trump in in the in his federal case? Yeah, um, though, it's interesting because if you want a rough idea of what a RICO indictment could look like. Mm-hmm. It could look a lot like what Jack Smith did. Okay. In that, uh, in that, in his indictment, mm-hmm. because, you know, we wondered, was he going to charge Trump for the call to Raffensperger? Mm-hmm. Was he going to tra- uh, charge Trump Trump for the, uh, inciting the riot, you know, and turning them against Pence with his t- Coward tweet mm-hmm. was you know he going to charge Trump with with failure to act to to suppress the riot or mm-hmm. inciting it was he going to charge Trump associated with the fake you know electoral college certificates mm-hmm. and the forgery of those and the answer is no I mean he doesn't charge. Trump directly, directly or singularly with any of those things. What he does say is that they are all they all are included as steps in furtherance of the conspiracy. Hmm. And so they all appear in the indictment. Right. You know, as part of the conspiracy to deprive us all of the opportunity to have our votes heard and counted and the conspiracy to overturn the results of the election. Mm -hmm. So he does say, state what the conspiracy is there, but that's sort of how the RICO statute works. And if we substituted the word, you know, um, enterprise for conspiracy, Mm -hmm. then we, you, you get, to the RICO statute. And one of the differences is that for a conspiracy, you have to show um, a meeting of the minds with the co-conspirators. You have to have Mm co-conspirators and you have to show that they had a common plan or scheme. Like I said, a meeting of the minds Mm -hmm. and that, you know, in that sense, so that there has to have been communication between them and so forth, and which which we definitely saw in Jack Smith's case, where they were, where he Trump That's, was working with his attorneys to figure out how to uh, get these fake electors, how to flip results, etc. That's that's correct. Okay. Under RICO, you wouldn't necessarily have to do that. I mean, think about it. It's a you know a statute originally aimed to go after the mob. Uh-huh. So the mob boss you know, doesn't necessarily plan anything with the guy who's, you know, running the protection racket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he never talks to him. He may not even know who he is. You know, he mm-hmm. may not even know him on an individual basis, but they are both engaged in the same broad criminal enterprise. And that's the distinction between Rico and conspiracy is you don't have to show the the connections that, you know, are shown 
in the Smith indictment of Trump between the co-conspirators. They, uh-huh. It's sufficient if they engage in a pattern of re- racketeering activity in furtherance of the same general objective. So they were so, they were uh, part of an enterprise that had a similar common purpose in what they were attempting. Yeah, that's just it. If if Fannie Willis indicts under the RICO mm-hmm. Act, I anticipate that the in in indictment will say that the the purpose of the enterprise was to reverse the election results in Georgia, very similar to what Smith said, mm-hmm. that the purpose of the conspiracy was to overturn the results of the elections overall. So what are the pros and cons, then, of bringing RICO charges versus simple conspiracy charges? Is there, a, uh, is there any danger in bringing RICO that is not present with a regular conspiracy? Is there a particular advantage for prosecutors uh, indicting under uh, uh, RICO racketeering statutes? Well, there's there's advantages and disadvantages. One of the advantages, obviously, is you don't have to prove those conspiratorial connections. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you you have to demonstrate the pattern of racketeering activity, but okay. that's quite broadly defined. Um, and you know, it's basically, did you commit? And there's a long laundry list of crimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. really long. And and did you do at least two of them over the course of 10 years? Uh-huh. And that's a pattern of racketeering activity. And, you know, and and if, and did you do it as part of, you know, what's defined as an enter- enterprise, mm-hmm. which can be any union of individuals associated, in fact, even if not a legal entity. So what's the downside? The, the downside is that they tend to be very, very hard and complex cases. Uh-huh. And to unravel the whole thing in front of a jury, you know, and they do tend to involve large number of defendants. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you gave the example of the, the group of teachers uh, mm-hmm. in Fulton County that uh, Fannie Willis already went after for helping students cheat. Right. On on test scores. Well, you know, and once again, it doesn't matter that those individuals, I mean, it's a really good example because because it doesn't matter that those individuals didn't necessarily associate or plan this with each other. Okay, you know, but they were part of the same enterprise to do this. Now, uh, this I found very interesting, uh, Keith Barber, in your RICO primer over at Daily Coast, and I will link folks over to it. But you, de- as you describe, uh, in both the federal uh, RICO, statu- RICO statute and in Georgia's, they both provide, quote, for civil remedies that can be imposed during the pendency of the criminal proceedings. So if I am understanding that correctly, Trump could be made to forfeit all of the funds that he raised via his uh, criminal enterprise in this case, even before the trial. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's, that's correct. It's one of the more controversial aspects of RICO is that it has this civil provision where the, the standard of proof is, you know, just the preponderance of evidence and, you know, you, you have to convince a judge to do it, but allows, uh, the, the, the gains of the criminal activity uh-huh. to be 
seized and and held pending the results of the criminal trial. So this would be like if in mafia terms, they earned a a million dollars selling drugs or something. Uh, It would then be if they don't uh, seize those funds, they would otherwise be allowing them to use those profits in order to fund their case and pay their lawyers, et cetera. That's right. And one of the criticisms of it is that it denies defendants of you know, the assets that they need to pay counsel to defend themselves. But, um, you know, that's that's one just one of the very powerful provisions of the RICO Act. And here you would be looking at all the times Trump used these false claims of election fraud to try and raise money and and the millions (laughs) raised from it. And, you know, I don't know if Fannie Willis will go that way or not, but. Um, so it's not a requirement. It's, a it's it's something that uh, Fani might ask the judge to uh, to do to uh, to seize this guy the money that he made uh, by claiming that Georgia was stolen. That's correct. That's correct. Huh. It, it's not something that has to be done, but mm-hmm. it is something that you know it's a tool in her toolbox. Whether or not she wants to take out that tool and and ask the the judge to approve its use. Uh, that's up to her, but, um, Uh but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that is scary. It was one of the reasons that I was kind of hopeful that, that Smith would do the federal RICO statute, even though I didn't think he would, Uh I was kind of hopeful that he would because then, you know, that would allow the entire national scope. Yeah. Of Trump's fund fundraising to be uh, potentially touched the uh, for, uh, based on everything that we know. And of course, we don't know everything that Fonnie Willis knows about either the case or the Georgia law. Uh, but based on what we do know, Keith Barber, uh, if you as an attorney were bringing this case, uh, what charges would you bring in this instance, conspiracy or Rico, given that, you know, she has plenty of time to uh, roll out a huge case and is not facing the same sort of clock, I think, that uh, Jack Smith is in his case? Well, and keep in mind, there is at least a possibility that some defendants could be charged under Rico and some defendants could be charged individually or mm-hmm. on conspiracy charges okay. and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. there's the potential here for a mixed approach to this thing. Gotcha. But, I mean, Rico would be awfully tempting. It's kind of shooting for the moon in that sense. Um, It would probably, I think, have worked better on the federal level than on the state level. Uh, But, you know, it could certainly work fine on the state level. And I would really be tempted if I was her to go with Rico. And in addition, because I think you have the issue that a lot of the people – doing this weren't talking to each other much Mm-mm. and so establishing the commonality the common meeting of the minds could be more difficult uh you know if you're just trying to go with conspiracy I so i think uh, i'm a rico fan and and it's known that willis is yeah. Well, uh, and finally, uh, Keith, uh, very interesting. Uh, finally, in this um, the, the the trial in the uh, in the Georgia case so far, uh, or not the trial, but the case itself has been overseen by Fulton County Superior Court Judge uh, McBurney. McBurney, yeah. yeah. Who at the end of of last month rejected Trump's bid 
to toss out both the investigation and the investigator, Fonnie Willis, uh, after he had charged she was biased against him. Judge McBurney, as you wrote at the time, Keith, was pretty snarky in uh, in some of his responses to Trump in that case, <laughs> writing, for example, in his ruling, he, he wrote, quote, the drumbeat from the district attorney has been neither partisan in the political sense nor personal in marked and refreshing contrast to the stream of personal invective flowing from one of the movements in that case. That would, of course, be Donald Trump. Uh, ouch. Uh, what, if anything, does that uh, tell you, Keith, as an attorney about this particular judge? And will he be the judge on the case moving forward once and if Willis brings charges? Well, you know, uh, interesting bit of trivia here. The judges, uh, uh, the judges in Fulton County mm-hmm. uh, rotate duty of overseeing the two grand juries that are going on. Mm -hmm. And so this week, it is not Judge McBurney, whose turn is in that well, um, but next week it is. And that's another reason to believe that this will happen next week Mm. because uh, he's, you know, he's obviously familiar with the case and there's a good chance that if the indictment comes down on his watch, that the case will also be assigned to him. Mm. Uh, and why not? But I mean, it tells me that McBurney has a sense of humor. I, if you read that decision, it's also just on point legally. It's correct. Um, and, it, and it does, um, you know, show that he's had little patience for the argu- arguments that Trump was making, which mm-hmm. were really pretty absurd arguments. But I mean, there's the reference to the movement's overwrought allegations. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I had to look up the meaning of a word that he used because yeah. I, you know, but, but he's, he's, um, you know, he, he's got a sense of humor and, uh, uh, that you probably won't see much of that anymore in a, in a criminal proceeding if he's in charge of that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Well, Uh, I got to tell you, I take it as a good sign. I mean, he seemed like a tough but fair judge and added bonus, dry sense of humor, which is always helpful in these cases. It was actual fun to read a legal decision. There you go. Uh, It's nothing but fun, I'm sure, for you all the time. Keith Barber, you can find his work uh, at DailyCoast.com, where he writes under uh, simply the name Keith DB. You can also find him on the site formerly known as Twitter, at KeithDB80. Keith Barber, uh, always great speaking with you, my friend, and I suspect we're going to be doing it more in the days ahead. Thanks, Keith. Have a good one, Brad. Thank Thank you very much. You bet. Okay, so does that make sense? Yes. Basically, a conspiracy, the conspirators talk to each other about the conspiracy and and plan their crime, whereas... Uh, in a a racketeering RICO case, it's the whole enterprise that has a common uh, a common purpose, a common uh, crime that they are trying to uh, carry out without even discussing it with each other. Yeah, that you don't have to have direct contact or direct discussion saying, hey, let's do a crime together yes, for go, it to actually be prosecuted that <laughs> way. Go steal that election. You don't have to you don't have to say go steal that election. You could just say, hey, what do we do to uh, change those results? In our in our uh, uh, behalf or something like that. Anyway, uh, there you go. Your Rico primer. All right, let's take a quick break. and We'll come back with our 
climate change primer <laughs> for the day. Yeah. With Desi Doyen and our latest Green News Report. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's Brad Cast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. So, quote, Denver is the new Albuquerque. Albuquerque is the new Phoenix. And Phoenix is the new hell. <laughs> yep. N- nothing against folks in Phoenix, however. No, That's not at just all. uh that was a physicist Mark Boslow. Is yes. that how you say his name? Yes. Because that's kind of where we are. And by the way, uh, we're going to be heading out to Phoenix in a couple of weeks, whether we like it or not. They're doing some construction once again. So we have to bug out going from a delightful 80 degrees here in L.A. out to Phoenix, (laughs) where it's what? Well, it is hell, whatever it is. I think it was about 116 last I checked, Uh, which uh, I, I think does come into play, sadly, I should note. In our latest Green News report. Nobody is acclimated to 115, 118 degrees. The deadly toll of extreme heat rises in Arizona. Juno, now under a state of emergency, two structures have collapsed into the river so far with more at risk, including a condo building as officials call the riverbank highly unstable. Glacial outburst flooding a growing danger in Alaska. Plus... Slovenia's Prime Minister says this is the worst natural disaster in the nation's history. Extreme rains and deadly floods strike Central Europe, pummeling Slovenia. All of that pummeling and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and... Snarky comment. You know you're living in a hot place when you have to keep oven mitts in your glove compartment. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not in the glove compartment because you can't touch the metal tab. Welcome to Phoenix. This is your Green News Report. All right, Desi Doyen, big news. I think good news. Uh, in uh, Arizona around the Grand Canyon. Yes, as we go to air, President Biden is set to designate a new federal monument protecting the lands around the Grand Canyon in Arizona from new uranium mining that threatens aquifers and water supplies. In other news, a state of emergency in Alaska's state capital of Juneau hit by record flooding caused by a massive release of water from a lake dammed by a melting glacier. The glacial out First flood so far has swept away buildings and forced evacuations along the Mendenhall River. Alaska is warming more than twice as fast as the rest of the U.S. Glacial outbursts in this area only began in 2011, and this year's flood hit a new record. A recent study found a rising risk of glacial outburst floods for 15 million people around the globe, more than half of them in India, Pakistan, Peru, and China. And now Alaska. 
The cost of climate change is hitting hard in Slovenia, where they're just beginning to assess the human and economic costs from days of relentless, intense storms that hit Central Europe and triggered record flooding. Officials say it's the small nation's worst ever natural disaster, with floodwaters inundating two-thirds of the country, killing at least six, with preliminary estimates of more than half a billion dollars in property and infrastructure damage. When was their best ever natural disaster? Good point. In South Korea, more than 40,000 Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts are being evacuated from the coastal campsite of the organization's World Jamboree to get them out of the path of a looming typhoon. However, the international conference was already on the verge of being canceled after the most intense heat wave in decades sent nearly 1,500 teenagers to hospitals for heat-related illnesses. Mm. In the Midwest U.S., the record heat and high humidity of July, the hottest month in recorded history, has killed hundreds of cattle across Iowa, Kansas, and Nebraska. State officials said the unusual spate of cattle mortality demonstrated the toll of sudden-onset extreme heat on farm animals and food production. In the U.S. West, officials say an unusual desert wildfire in California's Mojave National Preserve that exploded in size over the last few weeks is now mostly contained. However, the massive blaze incinerated countless numbers of the preserve's famous slow-growing Joshua trees, which are not adapted to fire. Experts say they are unlikely to regrow, forever altering the state's fragile high desert ecosystem. On the other hand, we've had a surprising uh, easy wildfire season so far this year? Yes, overall, the U.S. wildfire season in the West has been quieter than usual this year, thanks to a series of winter storms. But Canada's record wildfires continue to mm. rage amid extreme heat and dryness and have now burned twice as much land and produced twice the carbon emissions of any previous year on record. That's not good. Finally, prolonged extreme heat in the southwestern U.S. has killed nearly 150 people in just five counties in Arizona, Nevada, and Texas, according to medical examiners. But experts say the actual toll may be much higher. Extreme heat kills more people in the U.S. than all other types of disasters combined. Rebecca Benner of the Nature Conservancy on CBS News warned that the costs of human-caused climate change are already here and rising. But accelerating climate action can reduce its impact. It is no longer a future threat. We are living this now. So whether your basement just flooded, whether you just had to evacuate for a fire, whether it's too hot for you to go outside and enjoy yourself, that means we are now experiencing some of the impacts of climate change. We have to reduce emissions and we have to do it immediately and faster. She sounds not so happy about that. Can't understand why. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Pandora, TuneIn, Apple, Google, or Amazon Podcasts. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been... Your Green News Report. It's too hot, too hot, too hot, lady. Gotta cool this anger. What a mess we made. We did make a mess, didn't we? <laughs> uh, we're going to work on fixing it now. And it is too hot. We are working on fixing it. We're, we're getting there. 
It should be fine. <laughs> uh, before we get out, uh, do I have time for a quick uh, listener mail here? Yeah. After our uh, previous broadcast yesterday, Deepak writes to say, Tump, and I don't know why he calls Donald Trump, he calls him Tump, but Tump is terrified of prison, not so much due to his criminality, but due to his hair. Can you imagine what it will look like in a week without maintenance? If you want to get the mm. ire of Tump and his ilk, start chanting, cut his hair. Ooh. Cut his hair. Great show by you and Ms. D. Love you both, says uh, Deepak. Thank you very much for that. Yes, and you know you. what? I think even though it's kind of amusing, I think he's more right than uh, he may have intended. I think that has a lot to do with why Donald Trump is terrified of going to jail. He will become gray and bald mm. after, what, two weeks in the, in the pen. <laughs> his vanity could not stand it. Yeah, really. I mean, that's his uh, uh, In, in addition living. to all the other stuff that's unpleasant about being in prison. Uh, yeah, but I think... It's his hair. <laughs> I think that's what scares him the most. All right, we got to get out. My thanks again to Keith Barber of Daily Coast and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you kind enough to uh, stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I Stay on, and me, stay <laughs> on your public airwaves. Bradblog.com slash donate. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to you. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Gotta cool this anger from this mess that we made. It's too hot, too hot, too hot, lady. Gotta run for shelter, gotta run for shade. It's too hot, too hot. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1902. That was the day more than 100 trade union delegates representing thousands of working people in St. Paul, Minnesota, elected Charles James to be the president of the city's Trades and Labor Assembly. Virtually forgotten by history, James is considered to be the first African-American elected to a city labor council anywhere in America. He was born in 1866 in St. Paul and began working as a leather cutter for local shoe manufacturers at age 15. This was at a time when most African-Americans were excluded from skilled trades. His biographer Dave Riley asserts that it is unclear when James became involved in union politics and organizing. Shoemaking was the largest mass production industry in St. Paul, employing thousands. Riley notes that the Knights of Labor had been active in the city during the 1880s and shoe workers were among the first to organize. By 1899, James had become the first president of a newly formed shoe workers union in Minneapolis and helped to found three more locals in St. Paul. By 1902, James was well-known and well-respected throughout the Twin Cities as a strong union leader. He served three terms as president of the Trades Assembly and then as secretary for seven more years. 
Riley states that James continued as a full-time organizer and district business agent traveling to cities across the Midwest to organize shoe workers. When he died in 1923, the Boot and Shoe Workers Union eulogized him in their national journal. Though James had been obscured from local labor history for decades, Riley and others have worked to write Charles James back into the history books. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Hi, everybody. Juliana Forlano here from The Juliana Forlano Show on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. Do you like to know what's going on in the world but don't like walking away from your news show feeling all depressed or jacked up? Do you like political humor? Then check out our show, The Juliana Forlano Show, Saturday at 11 a.m., Sunday at 9 p.m. on the Progressive Voices Network or find us at julianaforlano.com.